and thanks for tuning in to Stable Connections, the podcast. Today's episode is with Carrie Schlachter, and she talks to us about her journey coming from New Jersey to California, what her experience was in vet school, how she got the opportunity to do some body work on some of the zoo animals, including a rhinoceri, and what she's hoping her property turns into. Hope you enjoy. So how did you get into horses? <laughs> when I lived in New Jersey, uh, we had neighbors that had two older girls and they were riding as a part of their, their life. And my mom one day decided she was going to bring me to the horse show. And they were riding, both riding a horse by the name of Tic Tac Toe. And I That's felt, the whole name? Yeah. <laughs> and so I fell in love with Tic-Tac-Toe. I thought he was the best thing ever. And so I, I think I was in either second or third. I was in second grade. My parents made me a deal that if I got straight A's for my whole third grade year, I could take lessons. Mm, that's a good yeah. deal. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> and so, so I did. <laughs> I got straight A's and then I was you know, allowed to go and take riding lessons. Pretty soon after that, we were on vacation in South Carolina and I uh, went on a trail ride and I fell in love with the pony that I was riding. And her name was Millie and I had an Aunt Millie who was one of my favorite mm. aunts. But, you know, everyone was sort of like, oh, it was meant to be, you know. So the next thing we knew, Millie, aka Milestone Small Talk, was <laughs> <laughs> another long name. Just a big name for a little <laughs> pony, was uh, on our way up to New Jersey. And that started the, the competitive horse career for me. So. And what kind of competing was it? She was, um, well, she was a, a, actually a half Arab, half Welsh pony, but we did, I started out in the Children's Hunters, basically. So we did a lot of that, that kind of riding. And then as I got moved out of ponies, she decided at some point that I was too big for her. And she just started stopping every time I would try and jump her. She'd jump for anyone smaller than me. Mm. But it was time to yeah, move up. Yeah, I hit the dirt a lot. So <laughs> yeah, at that point it was time to move up. We ended up buying um, a warm blood by the name of Bijerman. And he, which he was one of my favorite horses ever, you know. And from Bijerman, I went on to have a, a thoroughbred and did the equitation. So he was a hunter, I did the equitation and then ended up in the jumpers cool. my final junior year. And then my parents basically said, you can either keep your horses or we'll pay for college. Mm. <laughs> so I chose to pay for college, have them pay for college. And I don't think I actually owned a horse by then. Bijerman had gotten injured and was lame. And so he was out in pasture and we had found him a new home. And then another one of my horses ended up breaking his pelvis. Ooh. Yeah, that was a that was one of the things that actually sent me down the veterinary path. Okay. He he came up lame one day on the lunge line, and um, this was about hmm, I want to say four weeks before McClay finals. It was still in New York City at the time, and I was really looking forward to it. You know, he came up a little bit lame, and so we had the vet out, and he said, "Oh, I think maybe he strained his tendon. You know, or he broke his pelvis." Is what he said. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> you know, Dr. Dr. Death and Doom, we used to call him. Needless to say, we hand-walked him for two weeks. He passed the recheck. Go ahead, get on him. As I went to sit on his back, I heard a crack. Oh, no. Yeah. Ugh. And at that point, he was four, three, you know, three-legged lame, basically. So he had broken his pelvis <laughs> of the luck, you know. So I rode a four-year-old at the McClay finals that year. Because oh. it was about all we could lease for, you know, a week before the... 
the finals. So how did it go on the four? Really well, actually. Oh, good. Yeah, really well. We missed a lead change, but other than that, he was perfect. So. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it was really good. <laughs> so you chose college over horses because you had to choose. Um, yeah. Did that choice feel complicated at the time? It didn't. I think because I didn't really have a heart horse at that point. You know, Benjamin was my my heart horse, and we were just leasing horses. Yeah. So I think it was easy for me at the time to say, "Well, I'm, I don't have one right now that I'm in love with," and I really wanted to go to college in California, which was going to be, you know, more expensive and everything. So, you know, I understood the finances of all of that. So yeah. And did you know you wanted to? be a vet at the time? No. Yes and no. So I always wanted to be a vet. But when I was in high school, I got waylaid by a philosophy course, actually. What does waylaid mean? It uh, means I, I got like sidetracked. Oh, okay. You know? Yeah. And the philosophy course just taught me that there was a lot more out there, you know, to think about than what I had originally <laughs> thought, you know. I was pretty linear. I was pretty on track. Get good grades, be successful, you know, that kind of stuff. Did that come from family, you think? Yeah. Yeah, 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 for sure. My dad was a pediatrician. My mom was a nurse. Education was the number one thing in my family. You know, that was the goal of everything was to educate the kids, basically. Yeah. So, and why California? Uh, my parents actually talked about it a lot when I was a um, just California as a state. No, they talked about Sausalito. Oh, so my dad did his um, residency at the San Francisco Children's Hospital. He did it in the '60s, the late '60s, and he they talked about. What a wonderful place Sausalito was. So I grew up with that thought in my head. And they really were very supportive of me going to college in California and then moving back out to California when I eventually did. Where did you apply in California? The only college I applied to, actually I think I applied to two colleges. I applied to Pomona College, which is where I went eventually. And I applied to the University of Santa Barbara. Cool. Um, and I got into both. I chose Pomona because I liked the idea of the smaller college with the bigger five college experience and stuff. So yeah. it was great. I loved it. I had a wonderful time in college. I did a little bit of riding during that time, kept my hands in the horses. I rode for a dressage trainer in San Dimas. So that was really something new and different for me. I thought it would be a good experience. And then after college, I, I didn't decide that I was going to go to vet school for sure until the end of my junior year. I actually was an anthropology major, which is, I think, kind of the major for people who weren't really sure what they wanted. That's a psychology. Right. <laughs> well, I was a psych major for about yeah. a year too. Yeah. Know? So, totally. And so I ended up camping in Joshua Tree with a couple of my friends and we were all a little bit like, what are we going to do with our lives? You know, we just kept asking each other, well, what are you passionate about? What are you passionate about? You know, and for me, it's always been horses. You know, what gets me up at four o'clock in the morning? is a horse show or, you know, going out to see a horse or whatever the reason. So um, I hadn't done my prerequisites. So then I ended up back in New Jersey taking classes at Rutgers to then qualify to go to veterinary school. Met a guy in New Jersey and I got into the University of Pennsylvania veterinary school and it was the only vet school I got into. So I, you know, I went. It wasn't until our well, my junior year in vet school, my, my third year in vet school, that uh, we started talking about what we were gonna do. And our plan actually was whoever got a job first, 
you know, outside of New Jersey, that was the only, you know, thing was where we would end up. Was he know. also in vet school? No, he wasn't. He was in business. Okay. So he was, uh, was going for his MBA. I ended up getting a job out yes. here. Yeah. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> you win. <laughs> yeah. or did you feel like a sense of like almost urgency to because of wanting to come back out here or anything? Um, I really only applied to jobs in California. So for me, that's where I wanted to go. I applied both to jobs in Southern California and actually had a job in Southern California that then they, the veterinary clinic rescinded. And I got this job after I graduated. I was on a riding trip in France with a group from Miwok Stables with Lindia Rubio. And oh my gosh, that's so funny. Yeah. yeah. And so she, she was like, oh, I know a vet you know, who had just lost his associate, and that was Robert Steer. So then my, at that point, fiance and I flew out and we met with Robert. I did an interview and they hired me, you know, on the spot in July, or no, June. And then by July, we were out here, basically, so. That's cool. It it's such really an interesting, <laughs> and you run into people you're supposed to for yeah. a reason. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it certainly seems that way, without a doubt. And Dr. Steer, Robert's dad, uh, Jim Steer, he went to Pomona College. So I got a hug and there was a lot of like, you know, we talked about the orange groves and there was a lot of, you know. Commonalities. Yes, exactly, exactly. So he was a, a great man. So we, we really bonded. So I moved out here and actually my fiance stayed back east and he commuted for about a year and a half to two years before we were sure we were gonna make the move out here. Uh, permanently. I loved it out here. You know, I mean, right from day one, it was, it's the ideal place to be a horse vet because you rarely have to deal with the freezes. You rarely have to deal with any sort of super hot weather. You know, I mean, from a working outside perspective, it's, it's very Maybe. ideal. Yeah. yeah. And I had spent too many nights at, in Pennsylvania warming the penicillin underneath my arm. You know, it was not, not for me, for sure. You know, for me, when I was in vet school, there was a lot of thought that went into whether I wanted to do a specialty. At that point, I had options of surgery, uh, radiology, medicine, in essence, for horses. So I went back and forth and back and forth a lot about doing a surgical residency. And I always said, if they ever offer a residency in sports medicine, that's what I would do. And you why know? is that? Because that's what I was most interested in. They had an extended rotation at Penn um, that I did, and I loved it. I just loved it. It was probably my one of my favorite, you know, rotations. I think there's something about solving the puzzle that is addictive in a way for lameness for me. When I came out here, that's what I every lameness case I focused on, and I was lucky enough to sit about every other Wednesday to sit next to Carol Gillis who is a veterinarian now, she's on the East Coast, but she was one of the frontier, you know, one of the first people to really do musculoskeletal ultrasound in horses. And she would come to Robert's practice every other Wednesday or so. My first, I wanna say two or three years at wow. least. So I got a lot of exposure to ultrasound at a very young time and it was life-changing for me, for sure. I learned a lot that I wouldn't have learned otherwise, so very lucky. Was the goal at the time to have your own practice? No, actually, I never wanted my own practice. I never wanted to, actually, I never wanted to own property either. <laughs> and life happens. Right. I also said that I was never going to buy a thoroughbred and I was never going to buy a mare and never a gray horse. And my first horse that I got out here was a three-quarter thoroughbred gray mare, who's actually out in the pasture right now. Ah. Still, so. Um, so life tends to, I think, you know, say, Steer you. 
Yeah. You know? Are you sure? Right. <laughs> exactly. So I had definitely had planned on staying in, you know, in a group practice of some sort. I liked the camaraderie, you know, and I liked the partnership of it, uh, of the aspects of it and everything. I don't need to be social all the time, but I do like some aspects of it. And so I liked that, that kind of community. Honestly, just have someone to someone to talk stuff out with, you know? Um, but at that point, I decided that I was getting frustrated by not... I think we were very busy. I was getting frustrated by having to cancel my lameness appointments or move them or bump them in order to go see emergencies, you know? I also wanted at that point to go... I think I already had my chiropractic, but I wanted to go and get my acupuncture certification. So I, you know, went out and started my own practice at that point. So, and when I started, I was just doing acu uh, chiropractic, acupuncture, and diagnostic ultrasound. It didn't have very much startup. It was basically an ultrasound machine and a truck, you know, so yeah. it was very easy to start. And um, why did you want to go the route of chiro, acupuncture, and that? Yeah. Uh, well, it allowed me to have a very structured day, which at that time I needed, and it allowed me to focus on those things and get really, really good at those things. And I think I would have stayed doing just those things. They're still my favorite, honestly. I would stay doing those things forever. The body work is getting hard on my body. You know, everyone said that would happen, but at the time I didn't believe it. You know? You're like, no, not me. Right. <laughs> so for sure, I'll bring my laser, my hypervolt along now, you know, but those are still my favorite things to do is the body work and diagnostic ultrasound. Sadly, they're not very profitable. The ultrasound takes a long time and the body work, same thing. You know, I don't, if I charged for the amount of time I spend with the body work, it would be prohibitively expensive. But the good news is there's lots of other things you can do in the sport horse world to carry those, those things, which are the favorites for me. So yeah, so that's how I got into rehabilitation then was the diagnostic ultrasound. And that's how I connected with Circle Oak then was through the diagnostic ultrasound and rehabilitation. And did you reach out to him? How did that? Yeah, no, it was actually Grant Miller connected us. He said, I think you should talk to Carrie, you know, She's doing this on her own, and, you know, she's really into rehab and everything. He had me come out and look at one of his horses, you know, and then it kind of started from there, and we talked a lot. He asked me to house my practice at the property so that we could draw more clients to the property, which we did for five years, I guess, really successfully. About four years in, we decided to build a clinic, and so we incorporated a surgeon and a radiologist into that. And there was a lot of stress around building the building, for sure. And it was also new, yes, right? Yes, yes, very much. And there was a lot of red tape, you know, and it took a really long time to build it. Really long time. And around the same time, I was getting a divorce, which is not at all easy nope. <laughs> for those of us that have been through it. I'm sure everybody understands that. And so, uh, yeah, there was a lot going on. It was a very stressful time. So one thing led to the other. And then we did pretty well at the clinic, honestly. Running a hospital was never my dream. For me, my dream was working with the animals, you know, as many vets are. We're animal people first, business people second. And it's difficult to put on your hat, you know, and change it on a daily basis. So as things fell apart at Trickle Oak, he decided not to re-up the lease. And so we basically went our own ways then, effective in to the end of 2018. I think between the divorce and 
what was happening there. I was so uh, stressed out by it all. I don't think I had an emotion, <laughs> honestly, other than fear, anger, hurt. You know, all of those things were just raging through my mind at the time. I couldn't even think of the future. You know, that my partner now, Rick, was really helpful through that because he sort of was like, think of the future like look to the future like what can we do what do you want to do what do you want what do you want what do you want like he must have asked who do you want to be you know what do you want to do like every single day just reminding you mm -hmm. yeah. it took a lot but we worked through it and I had an opportunity to buy a property in Novato all happening at the same time which then we were able to leverage into buying this property then the cards started to fall as they do but yes. in the moment it feels like a hurricane Totally, yeah. totally like a hurricane. I can't, I, like, I, I feel like I'm, I was such a different person then, you know, than now. And I think a lot of it was just the stress of the time and not knowing what I was doing. It wasn't that long ago, because we bought this property March 11th, 2020. We closed on the property the same day the world closed down, you know, for COVID. And it took me a while. I think I was still in that go, 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 like, mode that I had been at Circle Oak for a long time, because we were... We were always developing something or pushing something or... The next thing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It was a, a lot of overhead to pay for. And so we were always building, 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 building. And I was still in the building mode. And so I hired vets and I was like, build, 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 build. And I finally it took till, I would say, midway through this last year, 2021, when the vets I had hired decided to move to Oregon. And like, I was like, you know what? I just need a break. Like... I just need to worry about myself mm -hmm. and the few people that we have right now for a while, you know. And so that lasts for six months, basically. We just ran this property on a super lean budget and just focused on what I had to do, then thought about what we really wanted to do. And that's been great because it really opened me up to remembering who I am and who I want to be and what I want to do for the horse world going forward or for the animal world in general. Like what were your goals for this property? Yeah. So in the beginning, I think I didn't have goals. Hmm. All I had was I need some place to house the clinic, like in my brain. When I moved into the house in Nevada, I was with Rick and he had chickens and I had never had chickens before. And I was fascinated. I mean, I always was like, chickens you know come on i i love them i think that they're fascinating destructive hilarious you yeah. know i mean they die if you sneeze you know i mean i made a lot of chickens and so i thought to myself well we could have a farm and therefore we wouldn't have the chickens could have a better life you know but that's how simple my mind was at that time i okay. just couldn't I couldn't do anything past that. It wasn't until this past year that I really started to settle and figure out what I wanted to do. And there were, there were other reasons. I now teach for equinology. And so they wanted a place, to, a classroom to teach out of. And I knew that. And we were developing the re, this rehab certificate and school and everything. And I thought, oh, it'll be, you know, a nice idea to have them here. And I always wanted a, a herd of education horses, you know, oh, a herd cool. that was just dedicated to being and doing education. And so when we got here, I promptly collected you know, <laughs> yeah. seven or eight horses, you know, that were purely for that. As people do when they get yeah. property. Exactly. You know, we had a lot of ideas about farming and, but honestly, this property is great. It is a granite pile. 
with some grass on top, you know? Oh, so the yeah. farming ideas kind of got out the window. Um, we are doing some stuff to rehabilitate the soil. But for the horses, where I've really gone is towards the behavior aspect of things, number one. And number two, working towards improving the quality of life. I don't want to say improving because I don't think they... they maintaining? Not even maintaining. I think it's offering variety to the horses that are in the sports medicine world. Honestly, I think a lot of your backyard horses get a lot of variety, you know, because they get the kids, they get the neighbors, they get trail riding, and they often have space, a little bit of space at least to move around in. I think horses that are boarded and or are in competition barns, it's all work. It's, it's essentially what it is, right? I mean, it's just work, 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 work. And I don't think they have a balance. And I think on the East Coast, they get a little bit more of that because there's more turnout available. So one of my pushes is is going to be over the next year or two to keep developing this property and create, like we have on the website now, like rest and rehabilitation, you know? And I've done maybe six horses, you know, now where they'll come in for eight weeks. Most of the time it's post-injury at this point. But I'd love to get to the point where it's not post-injury. Where it's like a hard show summer and yeah. they can come here for, for six to eight weeks? Yeah, or even shorter. I mean, honestly, even if they did two or three weeks. And to that goal is to create paddocks that then interconnect to a trail. Right. Oh, cool. So basically they call it a track system. They're very popular in Europe right now. And the small farms that rather than having just a plain paddock, you create a track system. So I figure we're going to do a big track system. They'll go kind of, you know, up from the arena and the small paddocks here, go up the back of the property, wrap down all the way around the front of the property in not necessarily a loop, but it'll loop back to itself. And then we're going to build stations along the way. You know, there'll be a browsing station, grazing station, rolling station, rock pile, wood pile, <laughs> you know, we have plenty of all of that here. Yeah. And the natural terrain here, will also provide them with some challenges because there'll be, you know, steeper spots where they have to kind of figure out their way to go up through the rocks and everything. And I think what that'll do, it'll help them develop the neural pathways that will help prevent injury. To me, taking horses that are doing the same thing over and over and over again makes them very good at that one thing, but it also then predisposes them to injury. That much we know. They don't know as much where their feet are because they're doing the same thing all the time. Right, exactly. And even as young horses, they may come in having the adaptability to change the way that they're moving on a whim. Over time, doing the same thing again and again and again, like any of us can attest to, you lose the adaptability. You're not quite as steady on the stool because you've lost the ability to, you know, balance yourself. I'd like to have horses that can come here for, you know, whether they're prescribed or just because the owner wants, be it young, old, or otherwise, that can then use the track system once it's done, which should be end of this year, hopefully. The real goal is to prevent the injuries, you know, for me, to see if we can't help their brain get better and help their body get better. And the way we handle the horses here, that's where my behavior stuff comes in. These guys, I mean, the way I'm setting up the property, they'll never have to have a halter on in that whole time they're here. We took a horse in that was really bad about the halter and lead rope. It was very much what they, they would call a poison cue and she would bolt and needed station for shoeing and you know that kind of thing 
And now she stands great for the farrier. She walks up. She's voluntarily halters herself. You know, I mean, she's very happy to be here. And what do you think changed in her? A couple things. One, she was um, in a paddock next to one neighbor at the other place. So here she's in a group of now four horses. She's in a group. It's a little bit bigger space. The ground is softer. I think sometimes that's important as well. So I think she was dealing with a lot of chronic pain from the, the ground. And then we just never, we never put our halter on. And then when we started to put it on, it was with positive reinforcement. You know, when we, I mean, it's not, we've medicated her, you know, I mean, she had a wound we had to treat. We just did it with positive reinforcement in the field or we have a barn that they can come in through the stall and the center part of the barn is open and it's all rubber matted and they can, the, we keep the barn doors open, but I have a big stall guard basically that goes across. And so they, they can be free in there, which means that we can work with them without needing ropes and all that kind of thing. So we're working on doing voluntary haltering with all the whole herd now. And then the next thing will be voluntary trailering. <laughs> yeah. <Ooh. laughs> it's not cool. a small task. No, but it's an amazing task yeah. when it's completed. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I feel like by the end of that, I'm going to be able to say to anyone, you have a horse that doesn't trailer well, send them here, give them to me for X amount of time and we'll get them doing a problem and I'll show you how to do it. And it's all done through positive reinforcement and something called constructional training. And constructional training is, it's tied with something called errorless learning. What it is is basically like, instead of just teaching somebody to ride a bike, it's first teaching them to balance, next teaching them what the pedals do, it's next teaching them what the brake does. Okay. You know, so kind of breaking it down into its component parts yeah. and teaching those as straightforward, simple skills first and then combining it into the combination. You That's know? cool. Yeah, and they've shown, at least in the animal world, and I think they're adapting a lot of this to humans as well, PTSD, kids with autism, and other learning disabilities that that they used to think that oh well, like it's okay if you make mistakes and it is okay like it's not it's not not okay to make mistakes but a person who has learned a task in the constructional technique or errorless learning technique doesn't have a lot of the stress and other issues that can be associated with the error they're confident more confident in their ability to do x y and z and so that leads to a more adaptable person and task and it leads to somebody who can take that task and put it in any situation yeah so makes complete sense to me to do yeah. things that way yeah exactly so <laughs> So that's our that's our goal. So do you still go out in the field as well? Yeah, yes, I'm definitely still a road warrior. That pays the road bills warrior. right now. You know? <laughs> yeah. So I think if I could get down to going out in the field down to two days a week eventually, that would be ideal. I'm pretty close. I mean, right now, I, I definitely am in the field on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Mondays, most Mondays. Wednesdays are, well, I'd say, half clinic half field and then Fridays it really depends I'll do you try and keep Fridays for overflow and then I still see patients Saturdays and Sundays if need be I try and keep it close but the horse show world means that you know there's never really a day off so, yeah so yeah and are you mostly doing showing horses and performance it's a pretty good mixture I've always had a really good mixture in my practice but yeah. I'd still I'd say that at least 65% of my cases are uh, competition barns the other percentage are lamenesses you know that have been referred to me for X Y or Z um, or returning clients with a new lameness of some sort 
And you're still doing the acupuncture chiropractic? Yeah, stuff. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, cool. I'm still doing a lot of body work. I love that. It's it's very diagnostic for me. You know, it tells me a lot. And I think it fixes, I'd say it fixes like 60% of the performance problem. Do you still ride yourself ever? <laughs> uh, not for a while. I mean, I rode, I did buy a horse to ride, but that didn't last very long. Um, so he's part of the herd now, you know. Was that just timing? It didn't have time? Yeah, I mean, I so when I came out to California, I said I wasn't going to buy a horse unless I was going to basically use it, use the riding as a way to get more knowledge, right? Because again, education being mm -hmm. one of my, you know, that's how I was raised. And so when I, I got Raspberry, who is the gray, yeah, yeah. the gray, th three-quarter thoroughbred mare, I started out in Hunter Jumper because I hadn't done it in a long time. So I thought, okay, well, it's kind of new, you know? So I did that for about a year. And then I did a Western drill team for a year and a half actually, which was amazing. I mean, I'd never ridden with one hand before mm -hmm. in a Western, I mean, I'd ridden in a Western saddle, but never like in competition like that. And I had never worn false eyelashes or, <laughs> hair, or been in a parade, Bing. you yeah. know. So there was so many new things for me, which was amazing, you know. I'd never trailered my own horse. I mean, I had driven a trailer like to horse shows, but it was, I was always with somebody. I'd mm -hmm. never just thrown her in the trailer and gone somewhere. So there were so many firsts in that. And then I did some barrel racing mm -hmm. after that, which was also really fun. And I liked it. I had a pretty significant head trauma from barrel racing, mm -hmm. which was fascinating to me because I ridden and jumped, you know, I mean, at a really competitive level for many years. And I'd never hurt myself as badly as I did coming off at a barrel race. Well, stuff, there's also so. usually not helmets worn, right? Right, yeah, 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 exactly. I think if I had a helmet on, it wouldn't have been as bad, but. What happened? So it was, uh, it was at a race where there was an, a, an in gate and an out gate, you know? And so you went in straight and then went out to the right. And she's a smart mare, so day two, she went in, we'd had a good run. And as I started to, came through the timers and started to slow down, she jogged to the right really hard. My left foot slipped out of the stirrup and I hit the ground butt first, but I whiplashed my head into the ground, you know, and I got up and I, you know, took her back to the barn and I undressed her and I gave her a bath and I went back and I sat down at the camper and I looked at the guy who was sitting next to me and I said, are we in a barrel race? Oh you know? God. <laughs> he was like, where Is am I? camper? In a race. So anyway. So bad concussion yeah, is what that was? Yeah, exactly. And that was fascinating for me too. I mean, I'd never had a head trauma like that. My handwriting changed. You know, I had a lot of euphoria for a while. I was oh. really, really happy for a quick Oh, well, that's nice. Yeah, that's a nice. perk of having yeah. a head trauma. <laughs> so, it, was, it was all very strange. No short-term memory for a while, you know, wow. so. And then did it, everything just kind of come back to normal yeah. again? Everything, the handwriting never came all the way back, you know. Mm. Did it get um, better? Yeah. Oh, definitely, good. Definitely. Well, that's yeah. a great outcome as well. Yeah, exactly. So how did you come up with AIM as your name and uh, all of that? Yeah. Uh, actually, I came up with that. That was my name prior to Circle Oak, okay. um, Animals in Motion. And so I came up with it because to me at the time, I was very interested in watching animals move. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I was still very into how their bodies moved. I think again, if I had 
grown up in Europe, I might have been a physiotherapist, you know, rather than a, a veterinarian. I think I'm more fascinated with that than the internal workings of the body. The idea of motion was big, and so I just loved the idea of animals in motion. AIM, however, interestingly enough, I didn't really come up with until this time. It was when I first started out, it was definitely animals in motion, animals in motion, everything. And then for some reason, AIM was the... Which is know, the A, the I, the M. M right. <laughs> for anyone didn't catch that. Right. <laughs> the, the AIM thing came up this time around. I really like it, actually. I mean, I think it, it says a lot. And then for the ranch, you know, I was like, oh, do I want to name it the Animals in Motion Ranch or whatever? But I was at breakfast with a, a friend and, you know, I kept talking about Animals in Motion with and putting three fingers down on the table like this, you know, and like over and over again, because I saw it as having three prongs and it, it was going to have three groupings in my brain. It was like AIM behavior, it was AIM veterinary, it was AIM fitness, like those types of things for thinking injury prevention at the time. And he kept looking at my hand, I think, and finally he goes, he goes, all right, now tell me about the chicken foot. You know? And I was like, what are you talking about? And he goes, you keep doing this and it looks like a chicken foot. And I was like, oh, how funny. So then out of that became the chicken foot ranch, which is <laughs> why the name of our ranch is. So, That's great. Yeah. So you say animals a lot. And I know you talked about horses and chickens. Tell mm -hmm. me more about other animals you've worked with. Oh, yes. This has been my, my love the last year. This is actually really what has... Um, solidified the behavior for me. So I was given the opportunity to work with the people at the San Francisco Zoo, with the zookeepers there, to work on some of the horses in the children's zoo yeah. and the goats in the children's zoo. And they use the constructional approach at the San Francisco uh, Zoo, the children's zoo, for sure. And they are now expanding it, and have been, I should say, expanding it out to the other species as well. And so their training is all voluntary, meaning that the animals can choose to participate or not choose to participate. There's no restraint. They train voluntary blood draws, voluntary vaccines, foot trimming, they train all of that. And as well that for me, they were, they've been training voluntary body work, which has been really fun. So voluntary acupuncture, voluntary. So these animals are there because they want to be. The one mini they have, I mean, she comes running across the paddock, <laughs> winning. She's here. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and throwing herself onto our platform and they do a, something called a move in where they move into the hand and she throws her butt into your hand and everything and she just loves it so much. So once we got the children's zoo sorted out, we've forayed out into the main zoo, which has been really fun. And my, I have a, a newfound love for rhinoceri, you know, for rhinoceri. rhinoceri. <laughs> yes, I know. I mean, such a love. They're a fascinating species and they're very trainable. I mean, to a certain extent, they're like Labradors. They're very, very trainable. Yeah. Um, and are you mostly doing your body work on them or are you doing any veterinary? So, yeah, uh, no, no veterinary, not really. They have a great veterinary team at San Francisco. So I might, you know, throw my two cents in from my perspective, especially with the horses because they don't see, you know, it's horses that core. much. Right. Yeah. Exactly. But I've really been focusing on helping the giraffes out by starting to get, well, right now we're still starting to get them used to the chiropractic. We've got a good system going now. So I think now it's going to snowball, you know. What an interesting um, body to help. Yeah, <laughs> I know, I know. And we're doing some laser on one of them. And Do you have a ladder? Mm-hmm. Okay. Very tall ladder. Yeah. I was like, even the horse chiros, you need a, yeah. that box. Yeah. And so with a giraffe, yeah. like how do you get that neck? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Totally. <laughs> well, we, so part of the constructional approach is engaging the animal in the 
body work, which is something you do. I've done naturally for, with horses for years. I'm sure you have a bit too, where you're asking them to bring their neck around, usually using a cookie or whatever. Once they get to know you, you don't need the treat so much. So we do the same thing with the giraffes. You know, with the necks, they're pretty easy actually because you just position yourself where you need to be, and then you have the the person who's at the head, you know, asking them to bring their neck around. What kind of treats do they take? They love broccoli, lettuce, kale, purple, one of them loves purple kale. Yeah, sweet potatoes, carrots, you know, all of that, so. And are they choosing who you help and who you work on? Yeah, and then with the rhinoceros, we're just again in the infancy, you know, mm -hmm. where you, there's the old, their older one is 27, I think. And he has inflammatory bowel disease, so he's a bit of a poopy butt. And so we have been just starting to get them used to the idea of acupuncture to try and help that out. Is that the main kind of exotic animals you've worked on is yeah. the rhinoceros yeah. and the, the giraffe? Giraffes. Yeah. Is there any animals that you're like hopeful to work on next? Um, I think mostly it's the rhinoceros. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, we're going to try to do some other body work with them, you know, and see. I mean, I haven't really had a chance to get my hands on his spine too much yet to see if I can actually even motion palpate him, you know, so we'll see if that can work, but. But you said you are trying acupuncture yeah, on him? Yeah, yeah. Is it, it's different, the skin of them, I feel like is more like a dinosaur. <laughs> so they have, they have definitely have like thick and thick areas of the skin, but in between the thick areas of the skin, they have soft skin. So you can actually access it pretty easily. Um, yeah. You have to use a little bit longer needles because the, the skin is very thick. And so is that something once you have a chicken foot yeah, yeah. Aim at chicken foot <laughs> right. going and yeah. kind of like running. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to continue doing that at the zoo? A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's two reasons. One, because the team of zookeepers down there that is doing this constructional training is amazing. Like, it's really amazing what they can do. And I think I learn as much about myself and what I can do with the horses. The, a lot, in a lot of ways, these are very much like the sports medicine horses because they're in relative confinement. These are not creatures that are meant to be in relative mm -hmm. confinement. So I feel like I'm going to, there's a lot of what they're doing from a enrichment perspective is stuff that could be talked about and brought over into the sports medicine world. And I think that vice versa, a lot of what I've learned that helps the sports medicine horses, or the, I mean the horses that are sports horses, will help these guys, you know? I mean. They're I, all bodies, yeah, right? Exactly. They're all cells and yeah, blood and yeah, skin yeah. and. And they all benefit from movement, you know? And whether that movement is, you know, on a teeter-totter, let's say, you know, it doesn't, or whether it's going up and down hills, it doesn't really matter. A lot of the animals that are in the zoo, similar to a lot of the sport horses, live very solitary existences. And cross-species attachments happen. We see, you know, I mean, just go on YouTube, you can see it everywhere. And so I do believe that humans can act as a social surrogate for other horses, for horse social lives. But to only socialize for an hour a day doesn't seem like much, you it's know? It's very controlled. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think that a huge way for me, like one of the things I've started really talking to my clients about is that if they want to enrich their relationship with their horse is they should play with them. I don't really care what that play looks like in the end. Just 
being taking them for a walk on the trail being out in an arena with them with no halter and lead and seeing what they want to do i think that that would increase the the connection for many of them tenfold yeah so, i agree yeah, yeah. <laughs> if someone wanted to get a hold of you how do they do that ah they can go to our website www.aimequinevet or animalsinmotionvet.com or they can uh, call us at 707-738-2529 or text us at 707-738-2529. Cool. One of the things I've learned delving into the behavior, well, there's more, obviously I've learned a lot, but then one of the main things I've learned delving into the behavior aspects of it, which is something I think those that, of us that do do body work on animals recognize but it really drives it home is that you know as human beings that work with animals on a regular basis you have to be right in yourself before you can really connect with and work with an animal and horses in particular but i mean the giraffes are actually like really sassy chestnut mare <laughs> like they got super the color right. sensitive super sassy you know i mean so they're like they you have to be on point with those animals which makes them actually highly trainable which is i think why people still love chestnuts particularly chestnut mares once you're on there they have they see you as part of their team you're set but you you've got to really be on point with them so to me by learning about animals and animal behavior, I'm learning more and more about myself and the people that I work with. Cool, well, what I like to ask everybody is what is something you'd like to see evolve or change within the community? It can be you know, any sort of community, horse community, zoo community, whatever, yeah. uh, vet community that you'd like to see evolve or change over time and then how are you implementing that change? A topic that is near and dear to my heart is uh, that I would like to see training programs and facilities change so that they are more focused on putting the animal first and less focused on what's convenient or easier for the humans or better quote unquote for the humans. That applies to me whether it's dogs, horses, zoos, across. Chickens. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Across the thing. In order for us to get there as a human race, I think one of the changes that you're starting to hear talked about and starting to see changes that people are recognizing that animals are sentient beings and i honestly i do thank social media for a lot of that because i think that there's a acknowledgement that you can do a lot more communication with animals than i think was ever believed possible other than in very small circles the other thing that's been fascinating for me is that a lot of like the constructional training that I talked about, a lot of the errorless learning, those research studies were done in the 60s. So the knowledge is there. What is not there is the social acceptance of those methods, you know? Yet. It's right, yes, thank you, <laughs> exactly. So for me, it's, it's continuing the conversation and opening the door to recognizing that these animals um, I don't, should is a strong word, but I'm going to use it in this situation for me should have a choice, you know, and a lot of times they end up having a choice anyway, because the horses that want to jump, continue to jump and the horses that don't want to jump, don't continue to jump. They either break down physically or they break down mentally. And I guess for me, what I'd like to see is that we take that choice into consideration sooner rather than later. And just because 
an animal is really good at something, it doesn't mean that that's what they want to do. Mentally you know? want to do it. Exactly. Yeah, just because they physically are capable doesn't right. mean they mentally or want to. for it or, or the owner is convinced that this is what they should do. Good answer. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. Well, thank you for chatting with me. Yeah, I appreciate absolutely. it. Absolutely. Thank you, Shauna, very much. Of course. It's very nice. Bye. Hey again, and thank you so much for tuning in to Stable Connections, the podcast. This is your host, Shauna Burke. And if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, don't forget to follow on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and on Facebook. And the best way to help spread the word is to share on your story and tell all your friends. See you next week.